evening. Mm. So let's begin with our motivation and be in touch with our own wish to be free of dukkha, of suffering and unsatisfactory conditions. And then seeking a way out, we turn to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha for spiritual guidance. The Dharma being the real refuge, the Buddha being the teacher who's actualized the path, and the Sangha being those who have realized the nature of reality directly, unconceptually. And so seeing them as reliable guides and wanting to be free from our misery, we turn to them with a heartfelt wish to follow their directions, learn their teachings, and put them into practice. But freeing ourselves alone is rather limited when there's countless living beings, all of whom are exactly like us, wanting happiness and not misery. And so really opening our heart to caring for others in a healthy way in an earnest way. Then we ask, what do we have to do to be of the greatest benefit to them? And here we look around and those who are able to be of the greatest benefit are fully enlightened beings. And so then we too aim for full enlightenment. And so it doesn't matter how long it takes to get to Buddhahood. We can be happy knowing that we're going in a good direction. And be content in creating the causes and transforming our mind step by step. So take a moment and generate that motivation. saying I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But so often when we really need help, do we take refuge? Yeah? We say it all the time at the beginning of every practice. And we wake up in the morning, I take refuge Buddha in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. But when we have a problem, do we take refuge? forget, don't we? You know, we're mad at somebody and refuge. I don't need refuge now. I need to clobber somebody. <laughs> yeah. And when you're mad, what does taking refuge mean? Does it mean saying, Buddha, stop my anger? Is Buddha going to stop our anger? That's not going to happen. Buddha could have. He would have already. Okay. So taking refuge at that point when we're angry means thinking what would the Buddha instruct us to do with our mind? 
how would the Buddha instruct us to think or to contemplate or what direction would the Buddha steer our mind in when we're in that state of anger? What's the medicine for the anger? So taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha at that moment when we're angry is thinking, what teaching do I need to practice right now? But so often when we're in the middle of a big storm, we don't think of the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Our mind's completely flipped out, isn't it? (laughs) And we take refuge in our usual things. Sex, drug, rock and roll, and food. Okay? So, then we wonder why the practice isn't working for us. Well, maybe it's because we're not doing it. <laughs> or we're not doing it correctly. Okay. But sometimes we don't like to hear about a correct way to practice. It's like, I'm bright. I'm intelligent. I know how to practice. Buddha said, realize bodhicitta and emptiness. I know what they are. I know what bodhicitta is. I know what emptiness is. I'm going to realize that. Right? And then, you know, we might read, you know, oh, hearing, thinking, and meditating, you know, in that order. Or or our teacher may hear, may say to us, you know, you really have to hear the teachings, think about them, and then meditate on them. And we go, what's that about? You know, come on, I know what meditation is. do it my way. I don't need any help. Yeah? Right? That's what we think. I don't need any help. Yeah? Buddha says, sit with your hands like this. I don't like sitting with my hands like this. I'm going to sit with my hands like this. Yeah? Buddha said, don't get into ascetic trips. I'm going to get into an ascetic trip. It's going to be good for me. You know, I stop eating, I stop drinking, I start, I sleep on a hard floor, I take away my cushion, sit on the, on the floor in the meditation hall. I know what I'm doing. These austerities are good for me. They're going to transform. Yeah. Hearing, thinking, meditating. I don't need to hear any teachings. I know the teachings. I've experienced the teachings. (laughs) You know, when I was seven years old, I had these incredible experiences. And now I know I was really realizing emptiness then. I just didn't know it. Seven years old, I I was sitting in my room watching Mickey Mouse. (laughs) And then I saw it. Mickey Mouse was empty. (laughs) The television was empty. I didn't exist. All there was was a Mars candy bar. realized emptiness and I ate the Mars candy bar and it was just like in the sutra you know there's this sutra where the, the monks uh, were, were very hungry because there was a famine and uh, Ananda was so worried about the Buddha you know, because they didn't have anything to eat and so uh, a horse um, what do you call a guy who takes care of horses No, a a horse taker care came up 
and offered the Buddha some, you know, offered the monk some hay because that's all he had. And the Buddha, and the Nanda, I mean, he loved his teacher so much and he was so worried about the Buddha eating hay. And, and Buddha said, don't worry, you know, and took, took a little bit of the hay he had been chewing out of his mouth and gave it to Ananda and said, you know, eat this. Ananda started chewing it and it was the most delicious thing that he had ever tasted. So there, there I was, where everything went empty except for the Morris candy bar, and I tasted it, and it was exactly like the hay that oh, the horse care, taker care gave to to Ananda, who gave, no, gave to the Buddha, who gave to Ananda. I experienced great bliss and emptiness together. I must be ready for completion stage practice. That's what they say, bliss and emptiness together. Yeah, I'm a very special disciple. I did it fast. And the American way, with a Mars candy bar. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the way we are, aren't we? You know? I don't want to hear hearing, thinking, meditating, you know, don't do ascetic trip. This is like, well, these people know. What does Buddha know anyway? But I take refuge in the Buddha. (laughs) Yeah, but Buddha gives us some instruction. Forget it. I'm different, you see. I'm different because I realized emptiness when I was seven. Okay. (laughs) So we get ourselves into some trouble sometimes, don't we? Yeah. I have so many people come and ask me for advice on what to do. And their usual response is, yes, but. <laughs> On why that advice does not suit them. You know? But there's one person, one of the people in Seattle, whenever she asks me for advice, she does it. And her practice is going well. Not because my advice is so good, but because I'm just repeating what my teachers said. And I'm repeating what the Buddha said. But she actually does it when she has a problem. But most of us, we want to invent our own path. Because we're pretty smart. We're so smart that we've been cycling in cyclic existence since beginningless time. That's how smart we are. (laughs) Okay. So when we take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, you know, we have to look inside and ask ourselves, am I really taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha? Am I really willing to put aside my opinions and listen to guidance? Yeah? Am I really willing to... to put aside all my ideas of how it should be and listen to those who know more than me. Okay. So this isn't saying we go to the opposite extreme of being a little puppy dog and whatever somebody says, we trot along after. No, we have to use our wisdom. We have to think about things. Okay, But that's quite different than not listening because... We don't need to because we're special. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, really thinking, when I say I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, what am I really saying? What am I really thinking about? And am I actually going to do that? Or am I going to invent my own path? like I've been doing from beginningless time.
And when we take the precepts, you know, because the first instruction the Buddha says is get your life together, you know. So how do we get our life together? Stop harming others physically. Stop taking what hasn't been given. Stop screwing around. Unwise and unuseful sexual behavior. Stop lying. Stop taking intoxicants. And we go. That's easy stuff. They taught me that, you know, in church. I don't need to do that. That's for six-year-olds, you know? Because remember, there's no good, there's no bad. It's all empty. (laughs) So precepts? Yeah, sure, I'll take them. I like telling people I have precepts. But I'll kind of negotiate them when I need to. Yeah? Not harming others physically? Definitely people should not harm me physically. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, they shouldn't. That's very bad. Not taking things that haven't been freely given? That's true. People shouldn't take stuff that hasn't been given to them. But, you know... The people who hire me, they don't pay me enough, and so I deserve more than what they're giving. So I'll just take some of the office supplies, take some of the stuff around the office, because they aren't paying me enough. So this stuff is mine anyway. Right? Hmm? Yeah? Stop sleeping around everywhere. Yeah, sure, my partner shouldn't sleep around, but, you know, these other people who, they really need somebody to comfort them, you know? I mean, they really do, so I'm really, I'm sleeping with them out of body cheetah. Yeah? Yeah, because otherwise they'll be so unhappy and so miserable, because they really... I want to sleep with me. I don't have any desire. It's for their benefit. And then, you see, by benefiting them in this way, they'll get interested in the Dharma. And then I'll be able to lead them in the Dharma. Yeah? Good, isn't it? Good, yeah? Okay. Got that precept taken care of. Uh, Not lying? True, shouldn't lie. Lying very bad. But what I say, again, it's for other people's benefit, you know. Because if they lose respect for me, then I, I can't benefit them. And I'm, I'm going to lead them to enlightenment. So, okay, I made some mistakes in the past, but I can't own up to the mistakes I made in the past. Then they'll lose faith in me, and they won't listen to me, and I can't lead them to enlightenment. So my lies, it's, I'm not lying. I'm just saying something to protect them. Right? And intoxicants. Hey, man, you know, you can meditate so well when you're loaded. (laughs) You should try it. Yeah, you should really try it. Alcohol. Uh, Well, sometimes that one works not so well, but other drugs, boy, you know. Take some crack, you don't fall asleep in your meditation anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No, falling asleep, it's fantastic. You can meditate (laughs) 24-7. Think of all the merit you can create that way. Meth ain't bad either. Meth is pretty good. Keeps you awake. Don't get drowsy in the meditation. You know, all those people sitting in the meditation. (laughs) Take some meth. Just get over it, man. And then your visualizations. Try them. You know, drop some acid, take some mescaline. Those visualizations are far out. No problem visualizing. And, you know, you want to make offerings to the Buddha? 
Wow, the whole sky really is filled with flowers. <laughs> and it really is filled with delicious food and beautiful music. And look at those offering goddesses. <laughs> yeah? So you create so much merit when you're loaded, it's really the right way to go. Okay, so you know, this is we're and we're very good Dharma practitioners, aren't we? Yeah. In fact, we're gonna become Dharma teachers. Right. Let's become Dharma teachers. And we'll sit and get loaded with our students together and then lead them in meditation. Should we get back to Shanti Deva? <laughs> <laughs> what does Shanti Deva say about it? <laughs> yeah, right. Shanti Deva, he flo- he floated in the sky. Yeah, so I want to do that too. Okay, so you know. We really have to, to, to look and see. And when I say, take, you know, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, am I really doing it? Yeah? And am I really following the Buddha's instructions? If I don't want to follow the Buddha's instructions, how come I ask for teachings? <laughs> so I know what not to do! <laughs> Because I know what's better than the Buddha. <laughs> okay? So we, we really need to think. Okay? And then when we hear the teachings, we need to hear to think about the teachings we receive. You know, not just take them on blind faith, but really put in the effort to think about them. Because you know? often we hear a teaching and we think we understand it. Huh? But when somebody asks us a question, we can't really answer it. And then we say, but the reason I can't answer it is because it's inexpressible and inexpressible. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, take that Mars candy bar. You can get into inexpressible and inexplicable. It's your bet it's inexplicable. Because we don't know what we're talking about. (laughs) Okay? So that was just um, a little introduction, uh, a little commentary on the prayers we say at the beginning of the session, you know, so that we think a little bit about, you know, why we say we're taking refuge in Bodhi Dharma Sangha. What does it really mean? And to me, it, it means really thinking what... What medicine would the Buddha prescribe for my mind right now? And it's usually the opposite of what my ego wants to do. So, you know, if I were to ask my teacher, ask the Buddha, what do I do with my mind now? What kind of answer would I get when I have this problem? And then try and practice that. But if we haven't heard any teachings, then we don't know what to practice. If we haven't heard many teachings, we don't know what to practice. Yeah. So hearing the teachings and studying them is really important. And discussing them with other people to check and see if we've really understood them correctly. And why do you think they do so much debate in the Tibetan tradition? Because we all think we understand the teachings until we have to explain something and someone asks us a question and we realize, hey, I don't really understand it that well. But of course we can't say that. Okay, so Shantideva, verse 100, he said, these minds arising before or after the feeling, because here we're uh, still on feeling, Okay, uh, the mind's arising before or after the feeling can remember or wish for that feeling but not experience it. A feeling cannot experience itself 
and it cannot be experienced by something else. So what we're investigating here is what actually experiences a feeling. Okay? So in the context of, of true existence, a mind cannot experience a feeling that arises simultaneous with it, that accompanies it. Why? Because the feeling is independent. Okay? It doesn't relate to anything. A mind can't experience a feeling that arises before it because that feeling has ceased before the mind. And it can't experience a feeling that arises after it because the feeling hasn't arisen yet for the mind to experience it. Okay? So what we're coming to is in the context of true existence, a mind cannot experience a feeling because that feeling is independent. Yeah? And also because the past, present, and future are, com- are unrelated to each other. You know, they, they're each solid, independent entities that aren't related. Okay? So if the mind can't experience a feeling, then nothing else can either in the context of true existence. And feeling can't experience itself because then the agent the feeler, and the object, the feeling, would be one and the same, and that's not possible. Okay? So holding on to feelings of pleasure, pain, and neutrality being truly existent, it, you know, we're stuck everywhere we turn. We can't find a way to make sense of it. When we don't adhere to true existence, then the mind experiences feelings conventionally on the conventional level. Okay? So Shantideva continues, as there is no truly existent one that feels, feeling cannot truly exist. So there's no truly existent agent or person or mental state that feels, so the feeling also can't truly exist. How can these feelings bring harm to this collection of aggregates that lack a true self. You know? So I find this very powerful because we are so attached to our feelings, we're so reactive to our feelings. Good feelings, I want it. Bad feelings, get it away. Neutral feelings, who cares? So the, you know, our relationship with feelings completely revolves around this context of there being a real me. So, he says, how can these feelings bring harm to this collection of aggregates that lacks a true self? So if there's no truly existent me, because there's only a collection of aggregates, then there's no truly existent agent that experiences the feelings. If there's no truly existent agent experiencing the feelings, the feelings can't truly exist. Okay? So we're just left with things being dependent, yeah. things existing, dependent causes and conditions, parts, inter, you know, mutual dependence, dependence on, on uh, concept, concept and labeling. So since feelings are not findable under ultimate analysis, how can they cause a person to experience real pain or pleasure? Not only are feelings empty of true existence, but the person is empty. The person who experiences them is also empty. That person exists by being merely labeled independent on the collection of aggregates. But the aggregates, individually and together as a collection, are not the person. Okay? So now we go on to selflessness of phenomena in relationship to uh, the establishment of mindfulness on the mind. Okay, so now Shantideva is looking at the mind to investigate whether it is findable by ultimate analysis. Does the mind truly exist? And our mind is something that's very important to us. It's what cognizes, what perceives, what feels emotions. It's what, you know, is chiefly responsible for, for uh, being in cyclic existence, for attaining nirvana. 
Yeah. So, but, so this mind, which is so important to us, have we ever asked ourselves how it exists? Yeah. And is there something from its own side that we can point to that really is the mind? Is there an independent, findable mind that is identifiable when we search with ultimate analysis? Asking ourselves, what does the mind, the word mind, really refer to? Okay. So verses 102 and 103 of chapter 9, he says, The mind does not exist in the sense powers, in forms and so on, nor in the space between them. The mind is not inside nor outside, nor can it be found anywhere else. This mind is not the body or something other than it. It is not mixed with the body or entirely separate from it. Thus, it is not a truly existent thing at all. Because of that, sentient beings have natural nirvana. Okay? So, the mind doesn't exist in the sense powers. So, in uh, our sense powers, in the subtle material in the retina that, you know, sees, makes, that connects the object to the consciousness, in the subtle material in, in our ear, you know, in any of the sense organs, that's, that's not where the mind resides. Okay, so it, it doesn't uh, exist in the sense organs. The mind also doesn't exist in the objects that we cognize. You know, the mind's not in here, it's not in the sound, it's not in the taste, and so on. Okay, the mind isn't inside our body, it's not outside our body, and it can't be found anywhere else. And you're going to say, wait a minute, the mind's inside the body because they, they say when you die, then, you know, you try and get your consciousness to go out the crown of your head. So isn't the mind inside the body? It's a tricky one. Yeah, where is it? Where is it in there? And the mind is formless. It's not made of atoms and molecules. So how can it be located in a particular place? Maybe it's our own ignorance and our own distorted views that feel so attached to this body, you know, and attached to the sense organs that make it seem like the mind's in here looking out. Okay. So the mind's not inside the body, it's not outside the body, it's not mixed in with the body, okay? Um, and also it's not entirely unrelated to the body, at least the gross mind, you know? Because our gross mind is dependent on our nervous system, on the brain, on the sense organs, okay? So we can't find some truly existent mind anywhere. There's a dependently existent mind, yeah, a mind that depends on, you know, that arises in dependence upon the objects it perceives and the sense uh, powers that help it perceive, and on the previous moment of mind. So there exists a mind that arises dependently, but some kind of independent mind that doesn't depend on anything can't be found anywhere. But we feel like the mind should be independent, don't we? Like there is an independent visual consciousness that's hanging out there waiting to see an object. Yeah, it feels like that, doesn't it? There's a, there is a real auditory consciousness that's somewhere hanging out, even though I'm not hearing anything now, or like I'm asleep or whatever, but it exists there in its own right without hearing any sound and without the, the organ being, uh, the sense of power being activated. And that's how we often think of our sense consciousnesses. But nothing can exist that way. And I remember, you know, when they talk about a, um, a reliable cognizer and a valid object, being defined in relationship to each other and depending on each other, I was really revolting. No, first you have to have the valid mind. Mm -hmm. 
And then that valid mind can determine whether the object's valid or not. Yeah? Or first you have a valid object, and then you determine whether the mind perceiving it is reliable or not. That's the way we think, isn't it? But actually, those two things are defined in relationship to each other. It's not that one of them's hanging out waiting for the other one to appear. Yeah. But then it seems so funny. How can you say a reliable co cognizer depends on a, you know, a valid object which depends on the reliable cognizer? No, this is, you know. But we're thinking in terms of uh, true existence when we're doing that. They rise dependent on each other. Okay, so because we can't find a truly existent mind, we say that sentient beings have natural nirvana. Natural nirvana means the emptiness of inherent existence of the mind. It does not mean that we already have attained nirvana. Okay, natural nirvana means that the mind is empty of true existence. Because the mind is empty of true existence, therefore we can attain nirvana. Now, if the mind were truly existent, then it, you know, it would be truly existent, angry, truly existent, incapable, and so forth. Yeah, but the mind's not truly existent, so that lack of true existence, that emptiness is the natural nirvana of the mind. But it doesn't mean that our mind has already attained nirvana. Because if we were all if we had already attained nirvana, then what are we doing in cyclic existence? You can't be in cyclic existence and nirvana at the same time. Because they're contradictory. Okay? Okay, so this natural uh, emptiness of the mind is part of our Buddha nature. When we realize that there's no mind that exists from its own side, the grasping at a truly existent mind subsides. And by familiarizing ourselves with this realization, we'll be able to cleanse all the ob obstacles and obscurations from our mind. So this is important. We don't just realize the emptiness of the mind and therefore all of our obstacles, all of our obscurations are eliminated. You realize the emptiness of the mind first conceptually, then directly. Then you familiarize yourself with that emptiness over and over and over and over and over again. And that becomes, you know, how the, the cleansing agent for cleaning the mind of the obscurations. Yeah. Some people come into it and say, oh, you know, I realized emptiness. And then they wonder why they still get angry and attached afterwards. And they get very confused. And that's because they don't understand that, you know, you still have to familiarize uh, your, yourself with the realization. Uh, you know, sometimes we hear in Cham practice or Zen practice, there's talk of sudden enlightenment. But one um, Zen master, oh, actually, I've heard it from more than one Zen master. Um, several Zen masters have said that when they say enlightenment, they're not meaning nirvana at that point, the, the elimination of the, all the obscurations. They're meaning the direct realization of emptiness, or even a conceptual realization of emptiness. So somebody may have had an insight into emptiness, and they say that that's enlightenment in that tradition, but it's the first experience of it. But then the Zen masters say, after that, you have to go back and practice the method aspect of the path. You know, and create a lot of merit and familiarize your mind a lot, a lot, a lot with that understanding of emptiness in order to attain nirvana and, you know, cleanse all the obscurations from the mind. Yeah. So even when they talk about sudden enlightenment in the Zen tradition, they don't mean you sit down, realize emptiness, and boing, you, there you are. That's it. 
Mm. Yeah? So this is quite important to understand. It's a misunderstanding. Well, many people have misunderstandings, but some people in the Tibetan tradition think that the Zen or Chan people are saying sudden enlightenment, meaning you don't need to accumulate merit or practice the path for a long time. And that's not what they mean by the word, what the Chan means by the word sudden enlightenment. So they're very consistent, actually. Yeah, yeah, they're actually quite consistent. Okay, um, so then, you know, in examining the, the mind, we may um, wonder, well, you know, don't our sense consciousnesses truly apprehend... Oh, wait a minute, I, I forgot to read this first. Hold on. Okay, so saying that there's no truly existent mind that's found inside the body or outside the body or whatever doesn't mean the mind's totally non-existent. The mind exists. It exists nominally, just like all phenomena exists nominally. It functions. It arises. It ceases. It interrelates with other objects. And each moment of mind is dependent on causes and conditions. And because the mind depends on causes and conditions, it can be transformed. If the mind were independent, if it were truly existent, it, would, it wouldn't depend on causes and conditions, and therefore there would be no method capable of transforming it. Okay? And also to remember that there's many kinds of mind. There's primary minds, there's mental factors, there's virtuous minds, there's non-virtuous minds. So there's many different types of minds. And there's many ways of categorizing these minds. You know, it's, you can have a pie that's called the mind, and there's many ways of cutting it and identifying different segments. So when you hear different labels, don't think that they're all, uh, you know, kind of their own pieces that, that don't fit in with any other piece. Many of these things kind of overlap. They're just different schema that we use to, to look at the mind. Okay? So now... Um, yeah, if the, cog- if the cognition or s- of something exists prior to the object of cognition, then on what does it depend to arise? If a cognition or a cognizer and the object of cognition are simultaneous, on what does it depend to arise? Yet if it occurs after the object of cognition, then from what does the cognition of it arise. Okay, so here in verse 104 and the first two lines of verse 105, Shantideva is, you know, just like we did with feelings, you know, what is the mind that experiences the feelings? Here we're at, we're looking, what is the mind that experiences the object that we're cognizing? Okay, so if that mind that experiences the object exists prior to the object, then how it doesn't depend on the object to come into existence. Okay? I can perceive, it would mean I could perceive the cup before the cup exists. Ridiculous. Okay? If the cognition and the, if the, if the object and the, and the mind existed at the same time, then on what did that mind depend to, to arise? Because if something is the cause of a mind, it has to exist before that mind. If the object exists at the same time of the mind, it can't cause that mind to exist. Okay. Yeah. And if the object exists after the mind, then the mind can't perceive it. And if the object exists before the mind, then it ceased by the time the mind perceiving it has arisen. Okay? And so in any of these ways of thinking about a truly existent object and a truly existent mind, it becomes inexplicable. Inexplicable. That's the word. In other words, it doesn't make sense. Okay? So the only way we can talk about the mind perceiving things is on a conventional nominal level. 
with can't I, you know, ha- draw a circle around? I mean, on a, on a general level, we say, yes, the object exists before the mind cognizes it, because the object is a cause of that mind. But with true existence, that, you know, if we're saying the object is truly exists, is truly existent, then we can't say it causes the mind to arise. If we say the mind is truly existent, we can't say the object causes it to arise. And we can't have the object existing before the mind. You know? Because in true existence, the past is inherently existent. The present is frozen. The future is inherently existent. None of them can relate to each other. Yes? One thing cannot cause something else. Okay? So because a truly existent cognizer, a truly existent mind that's cognizing, is independent of all other factors. So it wouldn't need an object. It wouldn't need a sense power. It would just be there. It wouldn't cognize. <laughs> then how can you have a mind? Yeah, because the definition of a mind is something that knows. Yeah. So how can you have a mind that doesn't know? Okay. Then the selflessness of phenomena, that's the selflessness of mind, or the selflessness of phenomena in relationship to the mind. Now the selflessness of phenomena in relationship to the establishment of mindfulness on phenomena is just two lines. Shanti Deva did it real quickly. He said this way, the truly existent arising of any phenomena cannot be found. Okay. And then he doesn't explain any more. He goes on to a whole different topic after that, I think, about the two truths. Okay. So, you know, if um, by contemplating this selflessness of uh, composite phenomena, you know, phenomena that are conditioned, that have parts, uh, such as the body feelings and the mind, then we'll ascertain the emptiness of composite phenomena. Yeah, we'll see that it's impossible for those things to be truly existent. And then in the treatise on the middle way, Nagarjuna says, if there's no truly existent composites, how can there be truly existent non-composites? If there's no truly existent conditioned things, how can there be truly existent unconditioned things? You know, if there's no truly existent impermanent things, how can there be truly existent permanent things? Why? Because ascertaining permanent things depends upon um, impermanent things. Okay? Permanent things don't exist in and of themselves. They exist in relationship to impermanent things. Yeah? Because all the permanent things are a lack of something. So it's depending on a composite phenomena to have a lack of that composite phenomena. Okay. So when we did the, um, the mindfulness on the mind, uh, as was explained in the, in the commentary on the Ornament to Clear Realization, there we were focusing mostly on the mental factors. In the Pali Sutras, when you do mindfulness of mind, you uh, focus on the five hindrances, and you pay attention to the five hindrances. You're not necessarily meditating on their emptiness like Shantideva does. Okay, but you're uh, contemplating the five hindrances, you're contemplating the five aggregates, the twelve sense sources, the four noble truths, the three characteristics, the seven enlightenment factors. So all these groups of different things are things that you contemplate in the Pali tradition when you're doing the mindfulness of phenomena. Okay? So you could very easily take, you know, contemplating those things and realizing their, their um, impermanence, their nature of being unsatisfactory, and their not being a self-sufficient, substantial existent self. And then on top of that, you can meditate on their emptiness of true, true existence, which is condensed in those two lines by Shantideva. So that's the end. Does anybody have... I forgot to bring my root text of 
Yeah, look. Well, the, the yeah. Do you have that? Because they always say when you finish something, you start it again and read the first beginning Yeah, as auspiciousness because then it means that you haven't finished it and you've got to do it again. Okay? So, a presentation of the establishment of mindfulness by, uh, by um, Jason Chucky Gelson. So it's from the fourth chapter of the general commentary to the Ornament of Clear Realizations. So he starts out, there are eight parts to this decisive analysis of the establishment of mindfulness. One, the observed objects. Two, the manners of meditation. Three, the reasons for meditating. Four, the nature. Five, the divisions. Six, the boundaries. Seven, the etymology. And eight, demonstrating the establishment of mindfulness in the Mahayana as superior. So that's a good place to stop. That, that uh, is the whole summary of the text. Yeah. Okay, so we have time for a few questions. Yeah. There was one that was from online that that's why you were talking about the then sudden So the question is, when you realize emptiness like that, do you cut the root to cyclic existence? Okay, so in reference to the Zen way of referring to sudden enlightenment, when you realize emptiness, do you cut the root of inherent existence? What? Cut the root of cyclic existence. It's cut the root of cyclic existence. That's what I was just saying. When they say you you realize emptiness, you know, and call that enlightenment. It's referring just to the first experience of, of emptiness you have. After that, you have to practice the gradual path and accumulate merit and familiarize your mind with that realization of emptiness. And only after you, you know, fulfill all the multitude of causes to attain full enlightenment, the non-abiding nirvana, that's when you attain it. So it's not just to realize emptiness and wham, in the next moment you're fully enlightened and you're no longer in cyclic existence. Yeah, it's not that. I mean, when you think about it, our mind has been under the influence of ignorance since beginningless time. That's a long time that we've believed in inherent existence. Is one moment of seeing non-inherent existence going to obliterate everything, all the conditioning from beginningless time? Nothing that works like that. Yeah, nothing works like that. It's, work like that. Yeah, things don't work like that. It's dependent on familiarization, habituation, you know. Yeah, that moment of realizing emptiness is a very pure mind. But... You come out of it, yeah. And so to, to never come out of that and to be able to perceive the two truths simultaneous, you still need a lot, of, lot more training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I got kind of stuck when I was trying to go back a couple of teachings ago and then it came up again last week about looking at the feeling... Um, and trying to, to look at the agent doing the feeling, the object which was felt, and the action. Mm-hmm. So where I got stuck was just trying to discern what, like the object. So if the agent is a person or the whole mental state, mm-hmm. the object is the feeling itself, mm-hmm. the action is the action of experiencing the mm-hmm. feeling. But if feelings are the objects experienced by the self, right? So the object is the feeling, and the action is experiencing the feeling. Mm-hmm. But the object itself is also an experience. You see what I mean? Yeah, the, the object is the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. Yes. And so how can, how, it, it seems to me that the object and the, the action in this one are the same thing. No, because there's a person experiencing pleasurable feelings, isn't yeah. there? Yes. And there's a whole mental state that is experiencing the mental factor of pleasure or pain. Yes. So then the agent and the object are different things. But the action itself... The action is the process of, of experiencing 
Right. That's yeah. where I got confused. If the action is the process of experiencing, and the feeling, which is the object, really is the experience of those three things. Uh-huh. One of those three things. Yeah. You still need an, You still need the act of experiencing. When you hit a ball, there's a ball, there's a bat, and there's the action. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's a feeling. There's a there's a person or a mental state, and then there's the process of experiencing. Yeah, so I get that with any other phenomena except feeling. <laughs> well, I've said what I yeah, could, okay. so... So, yeah, because that seems like that's the very definition of feeling itself. So there's some part of it I'm not separating uh-huh. out. Well, see, this is the thing. When we think of agent, object, and action, we're making definition. I mean, we're separating things out conceptually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, conceptually, you can't separate them out. But, you know, experientially, they're kind of all happening at the same time, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? I think that's the problem I have with contact. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's so hard to get any sense of it. I guess it's helpful then what you said tonight about, you could talk about it conventionally. Right. And that's the way we think of it. We think right. that's all there is. But then when you look at it, the way you described last week, it's like, then what is it? Yeah. <laughs> we can't, I can't get outside of the boxes. Right. Each of these things are like um, their own entity. Yeah. Well, it's difficult if you try and fence them off from everything else, isn't it? But then when we do that, then what you were trying to say last week is the whole thing falls apart, just like what you were saying. Yeah, then they, they, the things can't relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So we have, we have to see that it's our mind that conceptually puts boxes around things. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But and then we don't realize that we're the ones who have done that and we think the things actually exist the way they appear to us. Mm-hmm. So I'm back on this uh, comment you made about um, so why do we say the consciousness has to leave the body? Uh-huh. It's not in the body. There's no body well, and there's no consciousness. consciousness. So but conventionally, conventionally speaking, the way things appear to our ordinary mind there's a conventional body, and the mind is related to that body somehow. Okay? So when we talk about it just on that conventional level, it seems like the mind is related to the body, and the mind would go outside the, the body. But when you think about it in another way, the mind never had form to start with, so how can it be inside a body? So then, so then I think, now I'm just sharing my ideas, then, you know, then I feel like my mind's in here because the sense organs are here, so I feel my mind somewhere in there looking out, you know. But is there a mind inside there looking out that I can draw a circle around and say, there it is? No. Yeah? <laughs> Yeah, we feel we feel like there's there's somebody in here. I mean, that's why they used to think, what was it, the pituitary gland? There was a little homunculus, a little man, somewhere in there, you know. But then, of course, inside the homunculus, there was another little homunculus, and inside him, and you have an infinite regression, don't you? Because that's what it feels like to our normal perception. But can it really be like that? Yeah. <laughs> well, somehow our ignorant perception is all changing when we die. And our attachment to this body is getting released when we die. We stop being so associated and attached to this body. But then being ignorant, you know, we feel like we need a body for another identity. So we somehow associate with another body. But that thing that's associated it isn't even a thing. So it's, it's not something physical. <laughs> it's connected to the body through the winds. Yeah. yeah, it's connected through the winds somehow. 
but you can't really draw a line around it. So when you, like last week, especially when you were going through and I was starting to feel, you know, how you get that kind of um, uh, butterflies in your tummy almost, like, wait a minute, uh-oh. And then I was listening to my mind and it was saying, yeah, but I'll lose something. And how do you That's the point. <laughs> yeah, but, but how do you, I don't know how to work with that so much. I mean, I don't know, because then my, my uh, logical mind gets in there. Then how, how do I, do I just keep trying to stay with it? Yeah, it can you know, be helpful to try and stay with it. But you see, this is why we need to cr- accumulate a lot of merit. Yeah, because the merit is what enables us to be able, you know, it's one of the things that enables us to be able to endure that understanding. Mm -hmm. And actually understanding why ignorance is the root of cyclic existence and being completely, knowing what ignorance is, knowing how it keeps us, us trapped, you know. Knowing what it grasps at and being having real certainty about that, that also gives us the courage to be able to go with that. Okay. So it really is just to keep the mind steady within that uncomfortableness. Yeah. Yeah. And not let the mind, like the logical mind, get in there and start yakking about it, because then you lose it. Right. Okay. Right. You use the logical mind to help see how your usual ways of seeing things yeah. are untenable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But once you get the feeling, feeling then stay with that feeling. feeling. Yeah. I mean, stay with that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's helpful. In that situation, is that, that's also why we need to have a more stable mind so that we can just, boom, put it there and not Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And not have it go into f- to fear, because mm-hmm. once you go into fear, you've kind of again you've lost the experience, haven't yeah. you? You're into something else. That feels more real. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> I don't want to lose myself. <laughs> yeah, that's why it seems to me you have to have really have very clear certainty of what ignorance is and why it's the the root of cyclic existence, you know, so that your mind really wants to go beyond it. Yeah. Because unless we really understand that deeply, when push comes to shove, we don't really want to go beyond the ignorant mind. Yeah. We want to we wanna hold on. Just like we hold on to everything else. Yeah, right. But we feel like we exist. Yeah. Okay, so let's dedicate. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all other and inner hindrances. Grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual masters be stable and their divine actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lausanne's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Due to this merit, may we soon 
attain the enlightened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzin Gyatso-Chanresi, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West Glory.